everybody, welcome to Hit Rewind, the podcast devoted to all sorts of crap. <laughs> Should I do a take two? <laughs> all right, everybody, it's been a stressful day. We are now into 1993, obviously, and we are finally wrapping up the very last episode of 1993, I think, right? Are we on schedule? What do we got left? I think there's, there's like still a movies one there's to do. There's a movie one, okay. Um, we're going to be discussing the albums of 1993. Um, John has picked his 10, I've picked my 10, and we are ready to discuss them. Let's do it. Isn't it nice, listeners? John probably can't tell. For the last six weeks, uh, my phone was fucked up, so I had to shove into like this makeshift speaker, and now it's on an actual speaker, and things sound better. John can hear himself now, and that's probably why he can tell. Yeah, I, I've got a little, little ghost in the background of me, so at least it's not loud enough to uh, cause me to start just doing stuff like that. Yeah. All right, so I think it's your turn this time. Okay, then. Let's kick things off with probably the one that you didn't like. Ooh, which one is this? <laughs> this is Heartwork by Carcass. Oh, yeah, made it maybe a minute into it. I'm sorry, it's just not my style. Uh, but uh, it, it's one of those bands uh, of the uh, death metal and grindcore genre, like one of the first ones. Like their debut hit in 88. And uh, th- does the name John Peel mean anything to you? Yeah, isn't that the guy who used to sell the stuff on TV late at night, John Paul Peel? No. <laughs> or, I don't know, have you heard about John Peel Sessions? Okay. Uh, for those who don't know, he was this uh, radio DJ in Britain, and one of the things that he had was uh, he would bring bands on and have them play on the show. And, I mean, these are bands that you know really well. And uh, Carcass was one of these bands. You know, it's it's insane because you have like, oh yeah, you know, you'd have like, like, you know, Radiohead and shit, and Carcass is one of these bands along with them. So they got a lot of notoriety because of his uh, promotion. Okay. And uh, okay, their early catalog is filled with songs like "Exhumed to Consume" <laughs> and "Manifestation of Varicose Urethra." You know, <laughs> you know songs that uh, let's just say probably aren't uh, the sort of stuff that you would necessarily put on mainstream radio. But uh, as time went along, they started. Uh, building themselves into a little bit more of a cohesive unit and they start like by the time this album comes along they're starting to put melody and yes that's a weird thing to say when it comes to death metal but that's effectively what they started doing was instead of just being hard-hitting fast angry things now these songs actually have more to it more uh, like get melody now You know, it's like, if you haven't heard the record, which obviously you didn't, these two obvious, you think these things could coexist, but they do. And this isn't necessarily the most accessible album. The one that follows it is a little bit more so, but uh, I definitely think this is their best. And uh, 
their videos made from this album for uh, the songs No Love Lost and Heartwork. And those songs, along with uh, the track This Mortal Coil, are really are the highlights of this album, even though this whole thing is all killer, no filler. But uh, since you didn't listen, I can't uh, have you uh, comment any more than that, so I guess we should get going. So what's your first one? <laughs> it's okay. Um, I'm wondering, I'm curious of the, of the ones that I had, too. You said there was something you were like, eh, eh. Um, but uh, I get the feeling maybe this first one might be one of those, eh, eh's. Is 311 Music their debut? Uh, I will say this. They definitely got better. Yes. Okay, so I'll say this. There's two different worlds of 311. In fact, I was listening to 311 at the gym today. And there's the early 90s version, which is more heavier, more punk, rap rock, whereas... Uh, the version that we've heard over like the last 20 years is more like the bands that they inspired, like Slightly Stupid and stuff like that, where it's more melodic, uh, more low-key, like, hey, let's just get stoned and hang out on the back porch, whatever, at a you know, a cookout or something like that with our family. So there's two different schools of 311. Yeah, and, and I think their, their lyrics got a little more elaborate, but I'm still like, thoroughly entertained by this album. Well, it's this. This isn't a particularly bad album, but I don't think it's a very memorable one either. No, it, t it took a couple. The first two were just them trying to find their footing. Um, you know, and, and then, of course, it's the, the one from 96 is where they really blew up. Yeah, like, I, I remember listening to Grassroots, uh, like, years before, and I hated it. So this is one that I kind of just gave a pass until like, you had me listen to it. And I'm kind of glad that you, that you did because, you know... I like 311 for the most part, and it's kind of nice to actually go and give this one the fair shake that it deserved. Yeah. Well, do you, th you think, like, later, as Rap Rock had died, you know, around 2001, 2002, as it was, you know, just going away, they started changing their sound, and they both, and you realize that both are actually excellent singers. Oh, yeah. I, I generally think their last two albums have been really, really good. They're, they're, yeah, the new stuff's more chill, for sure. All right, your turn. Let's see. Uh, all right, Manic Street, uh, Manic Street Preachers, Gold Against the Soul. Now, I cannot remember this album. I listened to it twice. I can't remember it. That's not a good sign, but also I have a very bad memory lately. And um, I, I didn't remember hating it. What kind? Was it Electronica? No, this was just a rock, you know, rock, rock album. Okay. Why can't I remember this? It's so weird, but go ahead. Well, that, that's the thing is, I don't have anything really to say about it other than you should listen to it because it's one of my favorite albums of all time, and they're a hell of a group to check out. But uh, I decided to kind of go and talk about uh, the disappearance of Richie Edwards, their guitarist. Oh, okay. Because uh, in 95, the day that they were set to fly off from London to the U.S. for a tour, he fell off the face of the earth. He had uh, basically, like, over the course of two weeks, had withdrawn uh, a total of 2,800 pounds. Uh -huh. You know, people thought maybe it was for the tour, or maybe he was going to pay for this desk that he ordered. You know, he gave a friend of his a book and told him to read the introduction which was about a person going into a mental institution before vanishing. He sent a package to an on-and-off girlfriend filled with books and videos, decorated it to look like a present. He then checks out of his hotel, uh, leaves the suitcases and some toiletries behind. Uh, he apparently went to uh, this apartment he had in Cardiff, 
uh, left behind his, pre- his passport in Prozac. And then, uh, last time anyone saw him, or reportedly saw him, was within this two-week period where a taxi driver claims that he uh, picked him up and the guy was pretending to have this Cockney accent that would drift into his uh, Wales accent. And then a fan saw him at a bus station. Two weeks after he left, uh, his car was found and uh, ticketed at the service station, which then three days later is reported as abandoned. That's wild. Now, now apparently, the service station was close to this uh, bridge called the Severed Bridge, which is a known suicide spot. Oh, no. And now, those who know him say that he would never have committed suicide. And he's, even like the year before, in an interview, was talking about how suicide would not be something that he would ever consider. So they kind of left it open as a, uh, as a missing persons case. And, you know, about 2008 was when they finally determined him as presumed dead. That is one crazy mystery. Yeah, it's it's a shame. And because, I mean, this album, the one prior to it and the one right after it where he disappeared after uh, are all amazing albums. And the band's still around. They, they still carried on. But uh, I genuinely think that they never reached the highs, especially this album right here. But uh, seriously, give this give this album a spin. It is phenomenal. All right, my turn. Your turn. All right, Tool, Undertow. And this is their debut, correct? This is their debut album. They Hell do it. have an EP that came before it, but yeah. it's it's just so. I remember seeing the videos and thinking that I've never ever seen anything like this before. And the fact that they never really wanted to be in front of the camera, that they created these little movies with claymation and stuff like that. And I, I think all of us were kind of in awe. Even if you weren't a fan of the music, you were like, what am I watching? This is something new. And, you know, there's long gaps between their albums and stuff like that. And there's Perfect Circle mixed in, in there somewhere or whatever. But I really think they're one of the best. Of They're that weird middle ground between, like, dark, alternative, and industrial. Like, they found that middle ground where it works really well. Yeah, it, this is like a, an album that's commonly referred to as a alternative metal album because it it's heavy, but it's also uh, not as heavy as like a as a say a thrash album or something. Right. Well, would this be but considered it, progressive metal then? Not this one. Definitely stuff later. They okay. they definitely become much more of a prog metal band later on. But uh, yeah, this. I, of the five albums that they've put out, I only really like three of them. Uh huh. And this, I think, is the weakest of those three. Oh, okay, okay. But uh, this also has some of their best songs ever recorded. Because you have Sober, you have, you know, Bottom is a Hell of a Track, Crawl Away, Intolerance. It's like, but you kind of get to like down to like a swamp song, and you start noticing that the these songs don't aren't as unique as later stuff that they put out and so just kind of this the sameness to the album it just kind of gets a little bit boring after a while i can see that yeah and i mean hell look up uh if you've never never seen it look up uh bottom but the uh, live version from lollapalooza 
with uh, Zach De La Rocha doing it. Oh wow! Okay, was that that was ninety four, right? Or 90, no, no, ninety five. Ninety three. That oh, was okay, ninety three. Also, okay. Yeah, but it's uh, Henry Rollins does the album cut, but yeah, like I said, Zach De La Rocha does the live version. Nice. All right, I'm done. Your turn. That's it. Wow. Okay. Well. How about uh, Steve Vai's Sex and Religion? Holy crap, I never expected this from you, by the way. I never seemed, you see, never seemed like the kind of guy that would just pick like a uh, straight up guitar uh, album. Like, you know, if Nigui Malsteam showed up, we're like, what? But Steve Vai's is a little bit different because they do have lyrics, and I did not expect that. Well, that's the thing is this, it, the first two Steve Vai solo albums are instrumentals. This one, he, uh, basically went and decided to do something a little bit different and put together a band called Vi. And he ended up uh, plucking this young singer and guitarist by the name of Devin Townsend, who had recently signed to Relativity, Relativity Records after giving them an impressive demo. And he gets this young kid up and puts him as the forefront of his, uh, his new band. Why do I know the name? Because uh, I'm usually talking about him probably off uh, thing. We we will be hearing some Devin Townsend stuff in 96. Okay, okay. Uh, but so this band they put together only really lasted the record. And you got a weird, you know, kind of a weird thing out of it, don't you? Yeah, well it's, well, it's interesting because you're really at that crossroads where the last of the hair metal world is gasping for air, you know? You know, you, you have like a little bit still existing from you know, Aerosmith and Def Leppard, Poison put out a decent album, but you're really like, this is the end. And Steve Vai feels like, like you ever get a grip from Aerosmith where they kind of knew what was coming and they tried to, you know, mix both of the uh, upcoming alternative world with the old hair metal stuff? Yeah, oh yeah. Yeah, that's what this feels like. Yeah, and what's funny is, uh, again, because you have uh, Devin Townsend, who is this musical chameleon of a, of a guy, and... Is he Buckethead? Is that his... No, <laughs> You're going to surprise no. me with something. <laughs> no, but it, you kind of hear a little bit of what you would get in store with him but it's definitely not as uh, loud and discordant as some of the things that he has done. Although the track Pig on this does give you a hint of it because that's definitely the most aggressive thing on the album. But I mean, things like uh, Be Still My Beating Heart and Sex and Religion are both really chill, awesome tracks. Yeah, yeah. Love it, it's, it's, a, hell of a, it's a hell of a disc. So what do you got next? Anthrax, Sound of White Noise. Uh, what John DeBello is gone, and I can't remember the name of the singer, but he's the lead singer of Armored Saint comes uh, in. Uh, John Bush. John Bush. And this is when I really start getting into Anthrax. I think that DeBello, now DeBello would change the way he sang when he came back. He sounds more like Bush. Um, but... Uh, that shrill kind of stuff that they had, the, almost like a punk speed thrash thing going that they had. Um, I never really could get into it. Now, of the big four of the of the thrash guys, Anthrax has always been my favorite, but really it didn't start until here. Well, that's the thing. is this They got the Black Album treatment because this is a quote-unquote soft album. You know, definitely a lot less, lot less thrash. It's more heavy metal than you kind of 
would think of when you look at their back catalog at this point. But it's a solid listen. You know, you got only Black Lodge, Room for One More, or Sodium Pentothal, uh, Hypro Glow, all, all amazing tracks. And, you know, it's like, if, seriously, once you get done with this album, you're still singing some of these tracks. Oh, yeah. I play this at the gym on a regular basis. Yeah. It's maybe my favorite Anthrax album. It's, oh, it's no, definitely no. a top three. I think, uh, yeah. what's the one that starts off with Go With The Devil You Know? Uh, oh. Was that 2011's album? Whatever it is. Um, oh. But I, I, you know, what did them in, and they said it themselves, is the next album, Stomp 442, is when they think they changed their sound too much. And also the cover of their album didn't even have their name on it. It's like they were trying to remove themselves from what people knew. And it didn't sell anywhere nearly as well as this one, which I think is really like one of their most successful albums. Yeah, it definitely is. And it's of that of that era of Anthrax, I think this is really the pinnacle and it's they don't get any better than this album for actually even even afterwards. They've got some strong stuff. But they've never hit this height or among the living heights. Right, Those are right. like the two peaks of their career. Yeah. Um, I guess that's it for me. Anything else you want to say? It's a hell of an album. Listen to it. Yes. You're next. All right. Simple Tura's Chaos AD. I tried. I oh, lasted longer than I did with... Uh, wait, no. I think I did listen to all this. We got to stop listening to the albums two months ahead of time. <laughs> and I need to make more time to revisit Oh man! Well, it's, this one's my fault. My fault for uh, dragging it out. I'm sorry. No, no, it's okay. Um, I but feel like Brazilian... I did hate this one. Uh, not like Carcass, where I was like out in a minute. I feel like I made it about halfway through this, but I didn't really have much to say. I was like, it's okay. That, I mean, that's all I can really provide. Oh man! There's Come there's on, a line. It's... There's a line usually with uh, metal that I usually. Well, I'm going too far away from the mic. Sorry. <laughs> uh, there's a line where I usually kind of don't cross and or I never really repeat. Uh, and Sepultura is, I feel like, just slightly over that line. Well, it's like the fusion of uh, thrash metal and the groove metal stuff that you get from Pantera, specifically with this album. Uh, but it's like what they also would do is that they would mix in, especially with the next album, mix in uh, Brazilian tribal and Latin music. Yeah, I mean, I respect what they're doing, but I just couldn't latch on to the songs. But this is... Uh, like one of these things where they had started out as like this hardcore death metal band and kind of got thrashier as they went along. But at this point is kind of where they figured out that uh, the groove stuff, the tribal stuff is where is where the what set them apart from everybody. And so it's I mean, Refuse Resist is one of the best album openers ever. You just get that, you know, beginning drum, you know, drum beats and stuff, and you're just like, oh shit, man, this is gonna go. And the guitar kicks in, and you're just, you know, you can't help but start headbanging and jumping. But once you, this thing never really stops. Even when you get to this instrumental acoustic track, uh, Kaiowas, which sounds nothing like anything on this album, and you, you kind of even, even with this slower track, you're still just kind of like, you can't help but really be in it. Well, I guess you can, because you didn't like it as much. But, uh, yeah, I, 
I'm sorry, but in 96, you're probably going to be listening to Roots, so... No, that's cool. Oh, I remember Roots. I feel like I like that one a little bit better. I knew a guy who listened to it. All the time? Yeah. Well, well here's the thing. What I think is interesting about this album, too, is that uh, they got uh, Andy Wallace to, to uh, produce and mix this, which Andy Wallace, if you don't know... He, if you've listened to any popular music in the 90s or 2000s, you've probably heard something that he, well, he's mostly a, a sound engineer, mostly mixed stuff, but he also produced albums. So he's done stuff with Nirvana, Rage Against the Machine, Rancid, System Spice of Spice Girls. <laughs> Linkin Park, I mean. <laughs> yeah, it, it's like if you've listened to a rock band, you've probably heard something Andy Wallace has, has had his hands on. So, uh, yeah, that's about it for me. What do you got? Cypress Hill, Black Sunday. This is almost my favorite year of hip-hop. Last year was good. This has so many that I, I had trouble choosing from. And I, I got to tell you, I've listened to Black Sunday so many fucking times, it's insane. In the membrane! <laughs> I will say this. I did myself a disservice because I listened to this after listening to one of the other albums that you had on here. And it doesn't stack up, which which isn't fair to this, because this is still a banger of an album. Yeah, the first one's better. The first one's so creative, the DJ is just absolutely on fire. And it's like, this is when horror rap started becoming a thing. Do you remember that? Even I remember Kurt Loder talking about it. He's like, upcoming, the new trending... Uh, this is a terrible Kurt Loder impersonation. But the new trend in horror rap is now taking over the airwaves. It didn't. This is like the only song that was dark that would technically called horror rap. <laughs> well, there's there's something we might hear next year if I uh, end up on my list that'll hit the horror rap label. Yeah, the, uh, but, uh, I love. Now everybody knows "Insane the Membrane." That's not the one. Yeah. Lick a shot. Or no, no, no. Cock the hammer. I'm sorry. Cock the hammer. It's the one that everybody knows from the last action hero soundtrack. But that boom, 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 boom with the rain in the background. Boom, 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 boom. boom. That's my favorite track on this. This is oh, one of I, those that played, when I first got my license, driving around in my truck, and me and my friends uh, listening to music, this was a constant play. Well, it's like for me, it's uh, when the shit goes down and hits from the bomb. Yeah, yeah. One little, two little, three little putos. Tattoo Jack me. Seriously, I've listened to this so many fucking times. What goes around comes around, kid, goes around. It's it's a it's a it's a fun album. I, I really did dig it. Yeah, I listened to some of their newer stuff, and they're still good. But there's something that they really had lined up with those first three or four albums that just you know the DJ is picking really great tracks as a backing. The mix is good, and the balance between the two rappers. I mean, let's be fair. Be real is the the focus. The other guy just seems like he's the he's like the guy in Mighty Mighty Boss Tones who hops in and goes yeah yeah you know hopping around whatever just to get people excited. Yeah. That's why I don't even know the other dude's fucking names. Be real and something. Yeah, uh, it's definitely definitely one of the things that uh, I had heard, and it's definitely of the uh, Cypress Hill albums. It is my favorite one. Trying to it produced by DJ Muggs, but it's mostly just I was looking. It's just mostly Cypress Hill stuff. I was trying to see if he was. If he worked on anything else that I had known, but mostly like these underground mixtapes and stuff like that, and his solo stuff. <sighs> Your turn. I got excited. I got truly excited. That was. <laughs> well, the 
Does this one excite you? Wu Tang Clan. Enter the Wu Tang. Thirty six chambers. <laughs> I, everybody knows the line from this Wu Tang Clan ain't fuck nothing to fuck with. I screwed that up. Sorry. Wu Tang Clan ain't nothing to fuck with. But I love the PJ, the PG version of this, where it's like Wu Tang Clan ain't nothing to mess with. <laughs> it's almost like a little oh. kid from Little Rascals just putting his hands up, Stabby. Oh man, it's you know it's like this is one of those groups where I think you either like them or you hate them. What I don't and, like, there is something I don't like, and it's a lot of the albums at this time. Because uh, Naughty by Nature almost made it on this list too, and I just noticed there's a trend in '92 to '94 of sketches that just don't fucking work. They're they're pointless, but there's always a sketch where it's like, yo, how you doing or whatever, and then they're talking over on the street corner all of a sudden, look at that motherfucker over there, and they start screaming at him, oh, kick your ass, and then usually shots fired, and it's pointless. It's not a sketch. I don't know what it is, but I hate it. Well, it's like interstitials and stuff. Yeah, but, but... It, it doesn't tell you anything. It's just like, no. okay, great, awesome. See, you know, you didn't really care for third base. Uh, Dara likes a dialect. You, you, you kind of liked a little bit of it. But what I thought they did great was the sketches were very unique, very weird, and they all told a story. They weren't showing off. They were just like a step into this strange land. Yeah. And, and they, but that's just it. I never really pay attention to sketches too much. I'm just here for music. As long as those things don't get in my way, I'm fine. Yeah. Well, I think it's funny is you listen to this album and you kind of get a sense of who are the guys behind the scene putting the album together, building the structure, whatever. And then you get the guys who are more the showmen. I mean, automatically you see Method Man and Old Dirty Bastard are like the shining stars on this first album. It gets better, I think, for everybody as the albums go on. But there are like Raekwon and the RZA and stuff like that. In the, in the Jizza, they kind of step back a little bit. And they seem to be like the backbone, like the drummer of, of Wu-Tang Clan. Well, it's like Riz, well, Riz is the one who basically did all the production work on this. And it's very interesting because he has, uh, of like all these uh, songs that, you know, rap songs that we've listened to, you know, even with uh, Tribe Called Quest, it's, Riz has a far, I would say a very unique way of uh, producing those tracks that it, you, you know a Wu-Tang song when you hear it. Yeah. I mean, it's not just the kung fu clips that they use. It's the fact that he incorporates the music with yeah, the beats or whatever, and it gives it a unique sound. And that's what I appreciate about hip-hop, that I feel like I'm, I just kind of pre-started testing out albums from 1994, and it feels like all of a sudden everybody stopped having a unique sound. And just like, oh, we'll pick a track that was super popular. You know, to you know, get the memory juices, nostalgia going, and, and it's like the P Diddy, the Puff Daddy formula that would be so strong for the '90s. And so, as the '90s go on, I'm going to start dipping out of hip hop again, and, and it'll come back like with Jurassic Park, not Jurassic Park, Jurassic Five, because um, they go back to the formula that you know, uh, Tribe Called Quest and Wu Tang and Third Base were using. Yeah, people who actually are sampling songs and making interesting music as opposed to making pop songs. Right, yes. Yeah, and you're not going to have any female singer in there for the hooks. Yeah, so what do you got? Oh, uh, let me look at my list. Um, I have Smashing Pumpkins debut with Siamese Dream. Well, not their debut, because I think it's we not. did their debut. No, uh, Guilt was the debuter. Oh, Guilt, okay. Guilt. Or whatever the the other one. They're like, they're, they're, probably was like their indie label, or whatever. This is like their big debut. Gaffin's pushing them. MTV's got them everywhere. And I remember just really liking this album. 
But, oh, you know, you're fucking right. What am I talking about? I remember we talked about this during the whole grunge off we did, like, what, eight months ago or something like that? Maybe a year yeah. ago? Where we were putting albums together and I offered uh, Smashy Pumpkins. You said they're not part of the grunge movement. What are they? Just well, a regular alternative? I, I think of them, I, I think that we associate them more as an alternative band. Although, yeah, I guess their, their debut is the closest thing to grunge that they had. Yeah. But, like, yeah, this one is definitely... I would. I, I'm very hesitant to say any grunginess about it. I guess. It's, Where are they from anyway? They're not even from the north, are they? They're from like Georgia or something. Something like that. Yeah. Um, I don't know. In my head though, because they they burst at almost the same time as you know the grunge movement or whatever. Remember, we were assigning that to everybody all of a sudden, unless they were very very unique. Like, oh, they're grunge. Oh, they're dark and murky. And you're right. Smashy Pumpkins isn't. They're very emotional. They're. Um, melodic and, and they have more of uh, a brighter palette, I guess, lyrically and visually. Yeah, now I'll say this: I think this is a good album, but it's mostly I think because the hits on this album are amazing, and then just kind of everything else is just kind of there. It, you you are correct. This is one of those I hemmed and hawed about making the list. Their albums do like the next two, I believe, are much better. But you know, I, I think. They were really working to find where they where they wanted to go. I feel like this was one of those um, albums where they had produced half of it, and the label said, "Okay, let's get you a new producer. Let's get you in there with a new sound or whatever." And so they just had all these tracks they already spent the money on, and that's the backfiller, you know? Yeah. So it's it's one of those things where uh, you have another another band on there that has a follow up to a debut. And I think this one is a little bit more of a successful version of that. Okay. But, yeah, it's, as I said, kind of boring for the most part, except for when you get those hits and then you're just like, oh, yeah, this is the fucking jam. <laughs> All right, your turn. All right. Uh, Paradise Lost, Icon. Now, this is not going to be the really the first album of the gothic metal genre. I've really have to look it up to uh, see which one that could really be but it's the first album that was actually referred to being called it which is funny because this band has an album called gothic that was released prior to it yeah but it really wasn't a goth metal album it was more like because these guys are like a death metal doom metal band uh -huh. you know heavy and dark and but growly vocals and stuff and but over time they kind of started leading into this direction and do you remember anything about this one? Nope. Ouch. Okay. Uh, remember the Sisters of Mercy album I had you listen to? Yes! I actually Re quite enjoyed that one. <laughs> it's, this is basically like a heavier version of Sisters of Mercy. Who, is basic. who would you say are like the... I don't know what goth metal is. Who are the big ones? Typo negative. Oh, okay. I know who they are. That's, I mean, there's, there's other ones, but if you're going to ever say a... The the band that's really associated with it that'd be typo negative but uh what else you got i am on this is, uh young black teenagers dead end kids doing lifetime bids the okay. funniest name ever for a band that has only white kids <laughs> i i my notes this these are my notes to it i don't know if i can if i can finish this one it's it's this fine is, i get it i this is this is, I, I understand that a lot of the hip-hop that I liked at the time, like I didn't know Tribe, I didn't know Wu-Tang at the time. I knew like House of, I, basically if they were white and they were rappers, I probably had their album. Look, that, I don't mean that as in a racist way, it's just whatever, it, it, it was what it was. 
So like House of Pain, Beastie Boys, did not own Vanilla Ice, though I still know all the lyrics to Ice Ice Baby. Uh, and Young Black Teenagers, I just remember seeing that video for Spin the Bottle, or Tap the Bottle, and um, thinking this is so catchy. I went and got the album, and I've listened to it over and over and over to the point where I think a lot of why I like this album is nostalgia. It's very, very poppy. You can tell this is like, oh, Marky Mark. You know, and, and all these guys are making huge record sales by making very, almost bland, mainstream. We have nothing really to say. We're just here to have a fun time. It's it's designed to be safe. Yes, but also I think they have a really good DJ. And I think that's a, a lot for me. If you have a good DJ, you can almost buy me past mediocre lyrics. So I understand why you didn't like this one. Yeah, just, uh, I just, my, my, my notes continue just like, this is just no. It's teenage fluff. It just is. Yeah. Your turn. Okay. Now, remember how I mentioned typo negative that yes. last time? Typo negative. Bloody yeah. kisses. Again, uh, this album is a fucking killer album. Man. Yeah, I don't. I don't have anything bad to say. Uh, I don't remember a whole lot, but I do remember this being like, okay, I like this one. Now, I, well, there's things that I would totally understand if you didn't dig because it's designed to be I don't want to say not accessible but it's designed to be like a dark joke because it also felt like a mood setter didn't it oh yeah because you have there's a lot of songs about love and loss but then it's also blended with these noisy sonic scapes like Fay Ray come out and play and dark side of the womb and then there's these dark sarcastic songs like kill all white people and we hate everyone but it's this is the album that has their two most well-known songs, uh, Christian Women and Black Number One, which Black Number One is effectively the signature song of the band. Uh-huh. Uh, Blood and Fire uh, was, had a remixed version that was on the Mortal Kombat soundtrack. And the, the vocalist, Peter Steele, this man has a voice so heavy, it's a brutal weapon. This, this guy just can beat you to death with his voice. And also, just for uh, shits and giggles, did you know Peter Steele was in Playgirls? Uh, no, why would I know this? <laughs> I don't know. Because, uh, because it's a weird factoid that I know. Okay. <laughs> and apparently he was apparently he was attractive enough to put, you know, to, towards the female gaze. Yeah, but did he have the meat on display? Was it worth the picture? Probably, I don't know. Yeah, I'm gonna go look. I don't mind looking at some Wang. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, again, this is definitely one that. Uh, Wait, his name was what again? Peter Steele. Uh, Peter Steele. That's a fucking porno name right there. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so what's your next one? Uh, Peter Steele shows his penis and all. <laughs> uh, Pearl Jam follow up to their debut with Versus. Um, obviously not the big big hits. Here's the weird part is, I listened to the two albums back to back, and I forgot that I knew. Uh, oh shit, what was the one before this? Oh, uh... Was it just Project? It can't be oh, just Ted. Ten. Ten. Um, that I knew every single song. It's one of those, that, like, you got a cassette, you listen to your buddies all the time. Versus was the one, and same thing for Vitology, where it wasn't listening with your friends. You kind of took it in. You know, you kind of listened to, to yourself, and they got more... They weren't as, like, radio-friendly, I think. They were more pensive and, and uh, introspective. I, it almost as if they were trying to walk 
back their massive stardom a little bit, I think. They weren't going for the radio hits, even though there was, like, Daughter was huge. But I feel like there's just more sophistication in this one. I know it's not as catchy. But I like this in Vitology better than 10. Well, it's funny is when we did the grunge job, I, I really, I found that I never gave 10 the shot that I really should have. And then it kind of made me wonder, have I been all wrong about Pearl Jam all these years? Is it because they were too big? There literally is a point where Jeremy played every single fucking hour and I just couldn't take it anymore. I, I, to this day, I still cannot listen to Jeremy. I just can't. It's uh, the same thing with Lot of Nirvana. They just played it too much. Yeah, I, I don't know. I, but I think this is okay. Uh, I, I think a part of this is it's a lot more refined and polished than 10 was, which kind of removed a lot of the charm and personality that you get in 10. It's like, it's a decent rock album, but it's a, you know, it's a, not a good follow-up to this great grunge album. Although I will say Bloods was a pretty sick and funky track. <laughs> All right, your turn. For my next one, how about Machines of Loving Grace, Concentration? Were they on the Crow soundtrack or something yes, like that? Yes, they were. Okay, that's yeah, why I that's... knew the band. I knew the sound. And I was like, wait a second. Yeah, I actually was not expecting this. I, I thought it was going to be more of a lower-key band. You know, I might get a little bored. I, I enjoyed it. That's the shame is everybody knows that song, uh, Golgotha Tenement Blues from The Crow, and that is literally it. Like, I mean, there's a remix of a song called The Richest Junkies Live that's a Hacker soundtrack. And But let's be honest, the only thing people remember from Hackers are the Prodigy songs. Uh, you know, basically nothing that they, they never translated, you know, into album sales from the knowledge that they, they got from a high-profile movie. But this uh, this album, along with uh, you know stuff, of course, by KMFDM, Nine Inch Nails, and Thrill Kill Cult, were like the gateways into industrial forming. Like Butterfly Wings from this album found its way into random stuff in the late '90s and 2000s. Like it's on uh, the Punisher Warzone soundtrack, uh, this horror film called Devour. And uh, I mean, it's a song that still, you know, still seems to have legs all, you know, 20, you know, 20 something years after it's, you know, debuted. Yeah, which is kind of rare for that genre, right? I feel like a lot of those songs were just of the moment and they threw them away forever. Yeah, it's a shame because this is a band that really should have been bigger than they were and they just never got the fair shake that they deserved. So, what is your next one? Tribe Called Quest, and this album is called Midnight Marauders. <laughs> okay, I, I will f start it with this. Is this as good as their first two albums? No. No. Are you fucking nuts? How those two albums are fucking pristine entities that everyone should own. Yeah. Scenario. But, Scenario but is you, the greatest hip hop video of all time, and it's not just the video. The song is unbelievably good. So it is hard for Midnight Marauders to compete. I think with. I think what Midnight Marauders is doing that the other albums didn't do was create a world, an atmosphere. That's really the only thing they could have done, I think. They could not top those first two. They just couldn't. So they tried to create like this introspective little world that they created. Uh, um, and I think it's very in-depth. 
very, um, I would say more of a mind game is what they're trying to do. They're not trying to outdo each other with sound. They're trying to do it with content. Does that make any sense yeah. or is that gibberish? No, I get what you're saying. Because, and that's the thing is, this album is great. It's not, is it as good as those two? Hell no. You, you can't really do that ever again. But Tribe, you know, they're one of the most interesting and dynamic groups ever. I mean, I'll, seriously, I knew Oh My God from this because I wasn't as familiar with this album as I was those first two. But uh, just out of the fucking gate, Steve Bitko kicked my fucking ass. Like, and the thing is just, it never really, it, it was always fun. I loved, I had a great time listening to this album all, you know, all the way through. And, you know, God, I, I got to think about it. It's like, have Tribe ever really had a bad album? No, I don't, I really don't think so. I mean, I don't, I don't listen to the newer stuff as much, but it, it, it's, it's still great. They never phone it in. Yeah, that's the thing. They, they, everything about this is fun. And uh, again, if you like those first two albums by Tribe, you'll definitely like this one. Do you feel like this is the album, though, where Q-Tip is now taking over? And, yeah, and I think I think I was reading something about that, yeah. Yeah, and it feels like he's taking over. And it's not just this, but he's also like on a lot of other albums. He's the guy who's being asked because he had a very unique voice. Now, Fife is nowhere nearly as bad, but he also doesn't have a standout voice. And I think that's what other people were noticing. But isn't that what caused the tension in the band? They kind of split up is because instead of being a group... It was Q-Tip and then the rest of the guys. Yeah, I think that I, I remember reading that that's, that was what was going on. And, and, I mean, he was a huge driving force for the music even prior to that. So I could understand why uh, Ego could take the wheel for some of that. Yeah, it's a shame. I mean, there was a long gap for them. Where they Remember they disappeared, what, for 15, 17 years or something like that? And it just... I was so happy when they got back together. I was like, what? <laughs> it's actually happened. Now, what's this? I do think that final album of theirs is, is amazing as well. Yeah. All right, your turn. All right. Uh, Orbital. Orbital 2, also known as the Brown album. <laughs> the Brown sound. Well, again, it's basically just a self-titled album, and the only difference between it and their first album is that the cover art was brown. I mean, literally the exact same cover as the first one, because it's basically just their logo. I think like a little, there's like a little uh, lines and stuff and then the tracks listing on, on the cover. But that's literally, it's just first one's green, second one's uh, brown. Yeah, this is another one of those mood setters. And at first I wasn't sure, I had never listened to Orbital before. Or did you have to listen to the first one and I don't remember it? No, no, we haven't done okay. Orbital. And I, it was more of a mood setter. At first, I was like, what kind of band is this? I didn't know exactly what they were going for. But, but you know, once you relax and you get into it, it's just like it's a it's like an atmosphere. Like that kind of like they have a very particular sound, uh, a feeling they want to set, and, and they're good at it. Yeah, because it's this mix of ambience, uh, trance, and a little bit of light breakbeat uh, techno. It's... A lot, lot less radiant, dancey, as like especially like the stuff off their debut. But it's uh, like I said, it's kind of a mood piece. And like the most well-known song off this is uh, the song Halcyon and on and on, 
which was uh, featured at the end of the Mortal Kombat soundtrack or film. And uh, it's a very poppy, happy song. And then you've also got stuff like uh, Lush, 3-1 uh, and 3-2, which are just like a... God, how long is that those songs together? Because it's effect- effectively one song broken up into two parts. But uh, yeah, it's, it's basically the most fun of Orville's albums as well. My and turn? I think that's it, yeah. Okay. Del the Funky Homo Sapien. No need for alarm. The big old follow-up. No, no real hits off this one. There's nothing... It's just, sometimes you get comfort. I've never listened to this album before, but there's a sound that I'm looking for in hip-hop. And Del really had it down, especially with like his future bands. Like Every time he would evolve into something new, he always had something unique, uh, uh, something um, uncommon that he was using in his music. And he had a hell of a fucking flow and a very particular voice. And I just, I just really like this album. Honestly, this is maybe my uh, least favorite of his solo works. Because, uh, like, the beats are great. I, so, like, listening to the music is fun. But this, the songs as a whole just don't really work for me as well. Like, Whack MCs and Wrong Place are good tracks. But I really... It, it's one of those things where it's like, he's got the sophomore slump album. You know, sometimes you get that, uh, you know, you got that really good debut, and then whatever you do is not going to really match up yeah. to it. And that's kind of what, what it feels like for for this one for me. Yeah, it can't compare to I Wish My Brother George Was Here. It just can't. But, you know, it's just like the way it was at Tribe Quest. It had something I was looking for, and it fit that, that need. Yeah, and there's nothing wrong with the Dell album in general. So, you know, it's like... I didn't have a bad time listening to it, but it's just, it's not as my, not, not the one I like as much. It's no tap the bottle. <laughs> <laughs> your, your turn. <laughs> is this the last album uh, for us? This is the last one, so uh, do you have anything that uh, didn't make your list? Matt, uh, Meatloaf, Bad Out of Hell 2 really was a, originally my number 10. But then I remembered something that I missed on my list or whatever. Look, I like Meatloaf and I love the epic excess of all his songs. I mean, they're really excessive. But there's a joy in how ridiculously over-the-top operatic they are. Um, but I just nudged it off a little bit for another album. Nothing else? Just that one? No, I left my list in the house and I lost half of it. <laughs> how dare you? Okay. Uh, well, a couple of ones that I ended up uh, passing on. Uh, Billy Idol's Cyberpunk. Oh, oh, I like that one. That shocks the system was such a great video. Let's see. Liz Fair's Exile in Guyville. Breeder's Last Splash. Yeah, that almost made mine. Yeah, Infectious Groove's uh, Sarah uh, Sarah Arc. Same thing, almost made it. Uh, Motorhead's Bastards. I don't remember if I even listened to that one. Uh, Morbid Angel's Covenant. No, you know why uh, I didn't listen to that one. <laughs> uh, Wasp's The Crimson Idol. Which actually came out in '92. Oops, <laughs> that was that, that was happens. Honestly, Wikipedia is weird sometimes. Do you ever get to the bottom of the list and it shows you undated albums? You're like, well, what the hell do I do with this? Yeah, I know it doesn't really help. And then, but if you go and look at it, like say the wiki article, then it tells you when it came out, and you feel like a jackass. <laughs> Let's see, uh, Entombs Wolverine Blues, which 
an album unrelated to the Marvel character, yet the label went and made a deal with Marvel to cross-promote the album and included a mini-comic in the booklet and threw Wolverine on the cover, all against the band's wishes. That's weird. Okay. <laughs> it's a good album, too, but it's just weird. Uh, and finally, I would have done KFBM's Angst, unless, uh, but I decided I'm going to go with their next album. Okay. But my final one... Uh, since you don't have the list in front of you, I was going to ask you how you think you pronounce the band name, but uh, Audiker is the band's name. That's how you say it? Audiker, yeah. Audiker. Okay, I, I remember liking this one quite a bit. Yeah, In In Conabula is the uh, album title. Yeah, surprised that I actually like this, because I saw it and I go, oh boy. <laughs> well, it's, what's kind of funny is this is really their only accessible album. Because these guys, uh, they make very complex uh, IDM, and it's a lot of it be uh, became very complex cacophonies of noise and bleeps and bloops. But this is like a much more laid-back ambient album. Like, you know, it's Calpol Intro, Bass Cadet, Four Four Four, and Eggshell are like favorites of, of mine. But uh, I'll say this, if you want to give yourself a challenge, look up uh, Gantz Graph. It's, it, it's this, uh, a basic video where they have this ab abstract object reacting to the music. So you get this visual way to kind of process what you're hearing. Okay. But I'll say this, it's, it's not noise or pointless noise, it's controlled chaos. So, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, this is a really good ambient album. It's definitely worth checking out. All right. And my final album, one that I remembered the last minute and added. Well, not the last minute. But you know when we made these lists two months ago. Um, you remember how I told you I used to get those monthly VHS tapes filled with like 10 music videos? Yep. And on and on was almost always like hard stuff. Like, you know, like heavy metal and... and Oh, by the way, there's a video that was on the end of this tape uh, that bugs me to this day because I have no idea who it was. It was a guy with uh, a nerd haircut. Like, he looked like the classic, like, Saved by the Bell nerd, you know, a little fucking tie, white shirt, buzzed hair, glasses that were taped together. But he had a fucking killer uh, a singing voice, whatever. And he had two microphones that were taped together in the middle, and he would just flip the microphone around and sing in each end. Does that sound familiar to you at all? No, that Fuck. doesn't sound familiar. All right, whatever it is, one day I will find this. Um, they also had a song on there called Hips, Lips, Tits, Power. <laughs> oh, I, I know exactly that song. That, that's that might... a Big Face. Okay, what is it? Uh, that's a Big Face song. Okay, uh, so that might help me track down if I put those all together. But uh, on there was a video that stuck out like a sore thumb because it didn't fit in at all. It was not hard rock. It was like, it wasn't even sure if you considered it alternative at the time. I don't know what you would consider it. But I hear this dun 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 And I'm like, horns? In hard rock? What the hell is happening? And it was one of the catchiest fucking songs I've ever heard in my life. And it comes from the Mighty Mighty Boston's from the album Don't Know How to Party. Look, I know some people hate Scott. I know this. I don't know why. You people are just no fun. Uh, how do you feel about Scott? Because you're going to suffer the rest of this decade. <laughs> uh, it depends. There's some stuff I like, but uh, overall, yeah. it's 
It's there's, not my favorite. There's three schools. There's the uh, the one that everybody probably knows is the California, the SoCal sound, you know, the real big fish sound, where it was more poppy. And then there was like that weird Midwest, a lot of more Christian bands, but it was very low rent, like, hey, we all these bands from high school, they got together in the garage, you know, that kind of low grade sound. But then there was like the more punk, uh, almost core version, where there, it's, it's heavier. It has horns, but it's clearly born out of punk, not so much like fun poppy rock, whatever, you know, pop punk. And Mighty Mighty Boss Tones, I think, were the first, first ska band in a decade to really break through. And then you would get like The Urge and, and, and a couple other bands that were, were harder than like the Real Big Fish Goldfinger sound. And I, and I just, this, this changed something for me. Um, that you could have this kind of music and it'd be social, political, whatever. And yeah, I had experienced Rage Against the Machine the year before, but this this felt different to me. Um, and I, I think I'm, a, I'm probably alone in how much I love Money by Boss Tones. Though I heard that he was an anti-vaxxer now, and that sucks. Well, it's like, I only know the, the two big songs by him, so this was a new experience for me, and I did not like it. Sorry. But I, was, I, I, will, I will say I'll tell you this. I didn't bail on the album. I just basically kind of skipped my way through it. Yeah. I think I maybe have only, only heard one or two of the songs from beginning to end, but I couldn't tell you what they were. I have to tell you this. He's not a good singer. He's not. He, he writes good lyrics, and they have good like kind of like uh, choruses, but they didn't learn how to sing, uh, create a song that was radio-friendly until the 1997 album that everybody knows, like... Um, uh, knock on wood was the song, um, right? Knock on wood. Oh fuck! I can't remember no, the biggest song. No, Jesus Christ! It's uh, so sad to say. Oh, no. No, no, no. Uh, impression that I get and the oh, other thank you. one. Thank you. Not Roy. Yeah, impression that I get. I'm a fucking idiot. Jeez. Um, yeah. So, ooh, you're gonna have to suffer some more ska this decade. I'm sorry. <laughs> Well, who knows? Maybe it'll be stuff I like. Maybe it'll be stuff that uh, I will find that I like. Yeah. Be good. You're gonna be dealing with some heavy, heavy. Metal I know. Stuff, I know. So. We're, we're. I feel like we started off like kind of on the same page, and we're kind of going in different directions. But the point of the show is not necessarily. And I don't want people to get like, oh, these guys don't like each other in their music. I mean, that's not the point. The point is um, what we personally like. My top ten albums. His top ten albums. We we listen to them. We discuss it, but we're not trying to make each other like guilt each other into liking the albums, because um, then it, then it's not it's not a conversation. It's kind of like um, uh, like like pleasing the audience. You know, I, I can't think of what I'm trying to say. You know what I mean? Yeah, it's I, I'm not I'm not going easy on you, but it's also I'm it's the idea is that I want to be challenged, and I I do expect to challenge you on stuff. Yeah, yeah. Um, so that is our top 10 each of 1993, and it is time for the plugs. I'm bald, I need hair plugs, but no, John, go ahead. Where can we find you online? I'm on Twitter, um, M-Y-U-Z-I-S-H-I-O-N. That is musician. All right, and Facebook, Twitter, and all your podcast hosts under Hit Rewind. And that is everybody. Have a good night. See you guys.